Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the takeout ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent... Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week, coming to you from our CBS News Bureau in Washington, D.C. Prepare yourself for brilliance. Now, you know that's not me. That's the guest this week, Joe Klein and John Ellis. I want to say a couple things about Joe Klein because I know Joe Klein better than I know John Ellis. Joe Klein wrote the definitive political book of the 1990s, Primary Colors. Now, I know some in my audience might say, wait a minute, wait, 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 come on, Major. What It Takes came out in 1992. I know Richard Ben Kramer's masterpiece came out in 1992, but it's about the 88 presidential campaign. I consider it a book for the 80s and also a sort of timeless masterpiece. But for the 90s, Joe Klein wrote the definitive book about the zeitgeist of politics in the 1990s, primary colors. Journalist uh, The New Yorker, Time Magazine, and all the rest. Joe is, like many journalists now, entrepreneurial. He has his own substack, Sanity Clause. John Ellis, also an entrepreneurial journalist later in his career. Two substack places, news items and political items. And together, they have a podcast called Night Owls. And if you want quiet gentlemanly brilliance about politics, medical technology, and lots of larger issues, I highly encourage you to become a follower of Night Owls. Joe Klein, John Ellis, greetings. Good to be here, Major. Thank you, Major, to have us. 
One other thing I will say about Joe Klein. When uh, we would be on the campaign trail together, Joe was, deservedly, a celebrity journalist. I was part of the faceless rabble of other journalists. Uh, <laughs> you can't sell that, Major. You, that is ridiculous. The idea of someone named Major being part of a rabble is... <laughs> yeah, that's a no, that's a no sale. Uh, yeah. To be continued, uh, probably uh, in Key West sometime, because that's where Joe is coming to us from, or Westport, Connecticut, Southport, Connecticut, rather. That's where John is coming to us from via Zoom. So, gentlemen, let's take uh, yesterday's late breaking news. We are recording this on Leap Day, February 29th. So Wednesday, the Supreme Court said it would take former President Trump's case about the assertion of absolute immunity and hear arguments April 22nd, the instantaneous... Reaction on the other side of that announcement was, oh boy, Jack Smith, January 6th case from a scheduling procedure or point is in serious jeopardy. Joe, I'd like your thoughts first. Well, I have uh, two or three thoughts about this. First of all, it was very uh, disappointing when it comes to the rule of law, because the appeals court, the Washington appeals court decision was pretty solid. I mean, you know, President isn't immune from all crimes when he's in office. But the fact that the Supreme Court uh, chose to delay this seems to me to be a very subtly political decision. Uh, We'll see when they actually come down with their judgment. Uh, But I think that uh, on the other hand, I think there is enough time And I think the case is serious enough. This is the most important of the four Trump cases. This is the case where he's put on trial for trying to overthrow the U.S. government. And I think that even if it goes up to the day before Election Day, this case needs to be heard. the third, on the third hand, I I have a third, I have a, I do have a third hand. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see how Democrats play this. Um, you know, Democrats tend to be wimpy in the face of the law. And uh, if the Supreme Court rules sometime in late spring that Trump must stand trial, then that becomes a major victory. And the Dems should play that as a major victory. If, it were, if the shoe were on the other foot, just think of what Barr did with the Mueller report. Um, you know, the Mueller report showed pretty clearly that the Russians, very clearly, that the Russians were helping Trump. It didn't show collusion. Uh, Barr emphasized the no collusion part of it. In this case, the Dems should emphasize emphasize that Trump has to stand trial, uh, that Trump is potentially guilty. Uh, But I don't think they'll do that. I think they will just appreciate the rule of law. John, many uh, commentators after the Supreme Court released its statement said, well, this isn't granting Trump immunity, but it is a de facto immunity, if only by delay. Your thoughts? I was surprised the court didn't just affirm the appellate court's uh, decision. Beyond that, on these legal matters, I, I defer to Joe, so... I don't know why you defer to me. I I didn't go to law I school. I don't cover. I don't uh, cover it what you do. I, I otherwise occupied. I did read the appellate court decision. I thought it was pretty airtight, 
and I was surprised that the, the Supreme Court, you know, made the decision that it did. I I can't believe that they will uh, will side with Trump on the issue, but you know, we don't know, and we won't find out until April. Having read the uh, appellate opinion myself also, it seemed to me that it was trying to show the Supreme Court, look, if you want to just look at something that is that covers the entire range of issues, questions, precedent, and history, and not wade into this, we've written an opinion suitable for that. But the court decided to wade in nevertheless. Uh, yesterday's other big news, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, leader of the Republican Conference for many years on the Senate side, will no longer be the leader after November. John Ellis, your thoughts about Mitch McConnell's legacy in that body? Well, the big one, obviously, is the Supreme Court. Um, He's almost single-handedly responsible for the transformation of the court uh, to its present 6-3 conservative majority. Um, Beyond that, you know, everybody has said he's the sort of the the classic Reagan Republican in the Trump era, um, and I think that I think that's you know I think that's accurate. Uh, the Mitch Mitch lost. I mean, he 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 stepped down or announced that he wouldn't seek re-election as the majority leader because he knew now that he didn't have the votes when that vote would be taken. Um, so he you know he's he would uh, jump before he was pushed. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's sort of a reflection, I think, of that generation of political figures, uh, Mitch McConnell, Rupert Murdoch, uh, Roger Ailes, that whole uh, consortium, I guess, of, of uh, major Republican figures are now, with Mitch's retirement, are now pretty much gone. And Joe, people often talk about the transformative effect of former President Trump on the Republican Party. Uh, he, he, that is to say, Mitch McConnell, transformed Kentucky politics long before Trump came along. When he was elected to the Senate in 84, it was a mostly Democratic state. Through uh, McConnell's diligence and attention to detail and the shifting political winds in Kentucky, it became a Republican state uh, long before Trump came along. Well, I think that that was part of a larger national movement uh, that's occurred over the last 50 or 60 years uh, that uh, stems from Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, the idea that uh, the Republican Party was going to move toward the white majority in the South and away from uh, the civil rights issues that had defined it. I mean, you know, Jackie Robinson was a Republican. Martin Luther King Sr. was a Republican. Um, And uh, and so this is part of a greater transformation. uh, And it may be, as John says, the 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 final arc of that period. Now, the Republican party is transitioning to something else. It's transitioning to a nativist, isolationist, protectionist sort of party. And uh, we'll see who they choose in the Senate. Uh, You know, the Senate structure makes it difficult for almost anything to happen there. And that's on purpose. That's what the founders intended. Mm -hmm. And I'm just not so sure which of the uh, the three John candidates, um, <laughs> right? 
John Thune, John Cornyn, and John Barrasso. I'm going to stop you right there, Joe, because we've got to jump to a break. We'll continue this conversation on the other side of that break. Segment two of The Takeout coming your way. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to The Takeout. Joe Klein and John Ellis are special guests. They are the creators of the podcast Night Owls. John Ellis's big substack is called News Items. Joe Klein's Sanity Clause. I recommend them all. So, Joe... Uh, continue our conversation about Mitch McConnell, then we'll uh, transition to some news about President Biden. Well, what I was saying was that I don't know that any of the candidates uh, to replace Mitch McConnell are going to be able to are going to are going to be able to create a situation like the Freedom Caucus has created on the House side. The Senate is by its nature a more small C conservative place. Mm -hmm. You know, not all that much happens there. Uh, my mentor, Pat Moynihan, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, used to say that the only time, only big things got passed in the Senate by 70-30 margins. Uh, that's changed over the years, It's and it's changed for the more passive, uh, because you're seeing things passed with 51-49 right. uh, Supreme Court appointees and things like that. I do think that uh, I do think that Tom Cotton might be a sleeper in that race. There'll be a lot of people who will throw their hats in. I I predict five, six, seven, uh, at least initially, will all eyeball that race uh, and all look for the blessings, direct or indirect, from the former President Trump. There was news yesterday about President Biden. He went for his physical. John, I know you want to weigh in on that. Yeah, I think you know the the. Biden age issue is now, I think, uh, embedded in this campaign. Uh, roughly eight out of 10 uh, voters, you know, think that Biden is too old to serve effectively uh, as president in a second term. And the mental capacity uh, issue was not addressed uh, in, in the report from the physical exam. And I think that just you know, throws more gas on the fire of the Biden age issue. So I don't, uh, I think that was, uh, I think it was a very bad day for President Biden yesterday because they have now basically by not uh, producing uh, a, 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 what's it called? A mental acuity, acuity or a cognitive test. Acuity, yes. Um, you know, it, it just, it raises the question, why not? And, with eight out of ten Americans thinking that he's too old to serve, uh, it's it's a bad. It was a very bad day, I think. 
Joe, do you, you agree? Know, the, and do you think it was a tactical mistake for them not to ask the doctor to do that? The tactical mistakes that the Biden campaign has made uh, over the last six months are legion. There are dozens of them. But I would say this about his physical state. Um, we're coming into a very interesting week. We have Super Tuesday and Super Tuesday, to my uh, sensibility isn't going to be nearly as important as what happens two days later when Biden gives the State of the Union message. Uh, this is the a rare occasion, the only time I've ever seen this happen in my life where Super Tuesday wasn't that important. We know what's going to happen. Uh, but the State of the Union address is going to be Biden's mental acuity test, I believe. I think it's huge for that reason. It's Super Thursday is what it is. Right. <laughs> and I wonder if there's a way to uh, frame this discussion in a nonpartisan way. And here's I'm going to try to do that. When I give speeches and I ask people to raise their hand if they have a family member or a close friend who had a family member who in the process of aging through no fault of their own, was in one place, either physically or mentally, and then six months later were in a fundamentally different place and worse. About a third of the audience raises their hand. And I say, does that live experience in any way influence your thinking about the president of the United States and a second term? And even people who don't raise their hands about this lived experience raise their hands. This is not an illegitimate issue, Right. No, it's I, I, I don't think it is. And uh, I think that the fact that the, the, the president uh, doesn't have the, you know, the, he used to have a robust voice. Um, you know, he used to be a shouter on the stump. I, I remember his 1988 campaign um, when I was three years old. But <laughs> but uh, he comes across as being very frail and what we're you know what we're talking about is not just the frailty of today but he if he wins re-election and manages to live uh he's going to be 86 years old when he leaves office uh you know i i fear for his health every time he makes that arthritic walk across the south lawn to the helicopter uh that's now uh, I, I really think that this is a very legitimate issue, and I think the Democrats are being ostriches about this. They've got their heads in the sand. They are refusing to face reality. And uh, I'll toss it over to John, who has the numbers. And, and, and John, every vote for president is a projection for the next four years. It's an aspirational vote, and you can't have that aspiration if you're nervous about either the mental fitness or the physical stamina of the person you're voting for, or, or may you can, but it's much harder. Well, I, the way, I, you know, when I give little talks about the election, I say that the, if Biden loses the election, the principal reason will be his age. Um, they have not addressed how he's going. You know, I write a, two newsletters. Uh, I, you know, I, I get up early. I do a lot of work. When I'm 81, I won't be able to do it as well as I do it now. 
And uh, those are newsletters, not president of the United States. Right, as well as you do it now at the age of 39, right? Yeah. <laughs> the age right. of 32, actually. But, uh, but I just, I can't believe uh, that Democrats don't understand just how important this issue is, how central it is, how every other issue kind of feeds back to it. Uh, and if, if, as I say, if Biden loses, the age will be the principal reason. I should add one caveat here, mm -hmm. which is while he seems very frail, there is absolutely no evidence that he's lost his mental acuity. No. I and there's mean, nothing that's diagnosed and, and nothing that, right. that is on the horizon, uh, which, but you, which is important. You hear Republicans using the D word, sure. uh, dementia. There's no evidence of dementia. No. There is a lot of evidence of frailty. Right. Well, I would, I would also say he did a fund. Axios had a report about a fundraiser he had in Los Angeles. And the way they dealt with the Q&A was that they gave the donors questions and Biden read the answers to those questions off note cards. Um, that, that does not suggest high mental acuity. I've spoken to several donors since who have said that if they had been handed a question to ask Biden after they had kicked in their many thousands of dollars, <laughs> they would have taken the question, ripped it into shreds, and then asked whatever they wanted to ask. Right. That's the privilege of when you write a check of that size to be in the room right. for the president of the United States. But as a reality, Joe Klein, there's nothing that can be done about this between now and the convention. The primary filing deadlines in all but nine jurisdictions are passed. There's there's no room for anyone. If this is going to be changed, and I know you have, like I do, a sense that something is going to change before our eyes this calendar year that we don't expect, it'll have to be at the convention. Well, yeah, I'm not. I mean, Democrats in you know, the last 50 years have become small D Democrats as well, uh, believing in what I call radical democracy, uh, where uh, primaries decide who the candidates are. Uh, my grandfather was the Jewish guy who kept the books at Tammany Hall, which was the New York Democratic <laughs> political machine in, in at the turn of the century. And um, when you look back to the institution of the brokered convention, the smoke-filled room, um, I, th I think that the track record over periods of the, you know, this, the last 60 years and the 60 years before that, I think the brokered con convention has a pretty good track record, <laughs> certainly better than some of the nonsense that has pitched up on our shores in, uh, you know, in primaries. So we're going to get to that topic of what a convention might look like if there is a big change at the top when we come back. That's segment three of The Takeout. John Ellis and Joe Bryan, our special guests. Welcome back to The Takeout. Joe Klein and John Ellis, our guests. So, Joe, uh, I'm going to name check somebody you know, Dave Carney, very well-known uh, Republican operative in New Hampshire. He was recently at an event I was at at the Baker Institute in Houston, and he told everyone, listen, this is what's going to happen at the first day of the Democratic Convention in Chicago. Joe Biden is going to stand up, go to the podium and say, I withdraw and open the floor. And everyone gasped in the room at the Baker Institute. They're like, what are you talking about? That can't happen. He goes, I'm telling you, that's what's going to happen. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm just saying a guy who's pretty experienced in politics in New Hampshire helped uh, many Republicans find their way through the thicket of the New Hampshire primary process, believes that's going to happen. 
Your thoughts? Well, uh, Republicans have a lot of fantasies about <laughs> what's going to happen. I mean, you know, the the fantasy of Michelle Obama running for president, right. uh, you know, taking over. Uh, these kind of things are, are wishful thinking. Um, I've known Biden for a long time. Mm -hmm. And he is he comes across as the nicest guy in the world. And he is a very nice man, a very thoughtful man. Um, but he is also, you know, the donkey is an appropriate uh, uh, symbol for his party uh, because he is a stubborn mule of a guy. And, and he, he, also a, also, he also has the memory of an elephant and holds grudges. Yes, he does. I mean, uh, you know, there's this joke about Irish Alzheimer's. Uh, you, you forget everything except the grudges, right? <laughs> but, uh, but no, he has, you, you know, you look at his team and it's been in place forever. Yep. Uh, there is a reason for that. He runs a very tight ship and he is totally in control of it. And so I don't think that there's anybody around him that would have the status to go and say, uh, look, Mr. President, you've done a fabulous job, uh, but it's probably in your best interest and the best interest of the party for you to step aside now. Right. I just don't see that happening. Nobody to conduct an intervention. John, uh, if you were, if as you think about this, and I know you do, because I hear it uh, as a recurrent theme in Night Owls, the podcast that you and Joe do, is there something you think that the White House could or should do that it's not doing to address this? To address the age issue. Uh, well, I think Joe's right about the State of the Union. I think if he delivers a powerful uh, message there and, and handles him, you know, that he looks like a president, if you will, uh, and shows appropriate energy and, uh, you know, the phrasing is right and so on and so forth, I think that will go a long way to, you know, giving uh, Democrats at least uh, some confidence that it's not going to be a killer. Um, and then he's going to have to do that. Um, he's he's going to run a Rose Garden strategy. The Rose Garden strategy will say the real issue is Trump. Um, so we know what campaign he's going to run. And so he doesn't have to be out there proving his, his, that he's not 81 years old uh, every day, but he will have to do some kind of big speech like the State of the Union once every three weeks or four weeks and hope that that carries him through. Uh, quick thoughts, John, on the Michigan primary. Uh, well, I just want to say one thing, which is Joe is wrong. Michelle Obama is going to be the nominee. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know where he thinks that's a fantasy because I have it on very good authority that that's how it's going to work. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Uh, I do think the Michelle thing is amazing. I really do. Um, that's my favorite conspiracy theory. Um, I, thought, I thought Michigan was uneventful, actually. I, did, I, I thought Biden did very well, and I thought Trump hit his number. Uh, I, I, the, the, quote, takeaways and all of the, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times said that Trump is, you know, the party's divided and, you know, 75,000 or 100,000 people voted against Biden because of Gaza. I didn't see it that way. It's, you know, I thought Biden did very, very well, 80% plus. And uh, I thought Trump did very well. And the thing about on the Republican side, it, it doesn't matter what state you're in, okay? It, you can be in Massachusetts, you can be in Texas, it does not matter. 
two-thirds of the Republican primary electorate are MAGA, and the other third are not, right? And so Trump gets pretty much 90% of the MAGAs, and then the question is, what does he get uh, of the non-MAGAs? That number will improve as the primary process goes along. Um, so I didn't I didn't really see much in the Michigan results that, uh, you know. Joe, I, I was a bit surprised that the uncommitted, which was a placeholder or a proxy for opposition to the president's approach to Israel and Gaza, wasn't higher. Were you? Uh, well, it was 100,000 votes. And by, uh, by, per, by percentage, though, uh, I, I, I thought it could it be 10 percent. Yeah. I thought it well, could be I higher. Thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah, I. Um, it it could have been, but you don't need all that much uh, to lose Michigan. You of course don't not. Need, if, you know, you, you know, half of those uncommitteds, fifty thousand of them, can just decide to stay home, as many Arab Americans will do if he doesn't address the Gaza issue. Uh, I think that. Um, you know, when we're talking about how does he show vitality, I think he has to show vitality on two huge issues, uh, maybe in the State of the Union address, maybe later. One is, and this has been a constant theme for John and me on Night Owls, we are mystified as to why he hasn't done something about the border. Um, and it's pretty easily done by executive order. He could shut it down. But he hasn't done that. And he's going to have to address that uh, if he's going to have credibility. And the other issue is Gaza, which uh, at this point, Bibi Netanyahu is making Joe Biden seem weak. Uh, we've reached a point where it is, you know, my hope was that the Israeli response uh, to the massacre on October 7th uh, would be surgical. But it hasn't been. It's been a bludgeon. And uh I think that that's unacceptable. And I think that uh, Biden has to make a strong statement that we're not, you know, there are limits to our support. And you're well-traveled in that region, Joe. Um, it, yeah. The, the Netanyahu government, which we should note briefly, and you can speak to this more broadly than I can, is a government unrecognizable as compared to previous Israeli governments, uh, populated by hard-right members of the Knesset that are driving not only settlement policy in West Bank, but talking about reoccupying Gaza after Hamas is eliminated. And it's a kind of approach to this that even Ariel Sharon did not carry out, who, compared to Netanyahu, was regarded as more right wing. He wouldn't even do that. He left Gaza. The politics in Israel seem to be driving or forcing or creating more fewer options for Biden. And that seems to me the tail wagging the dog. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that the government that was immediately uh, before Netanyahu's current extreme right wing coalition was a moderate government that actually included Israeli Arabs. I think politics in Israel is a closely held thing. I've covered more than a few elections there, uh, and they are as intense as a New Hampshire primary or a New York City mayoral campaign that involved Ed Koch. Uh, but I think that, and and, and so it, I think BB's gone uh, after this. The polls all say it, but uh, 
you know, I, I'm hesitant to to attribute this layer of cynicism uh, to him. But, uh, you know, the evidence is there. As long as this war continues, he's in office. And so there is an interest for him mm-hmm. to keep the war going, which is disgraceful. John, quick thoughts? No, I uh, no, I don't. Okay. <laughs> it, are there options, uh, Joe, and we'll carry this over on the other side of the break, that the president needs to explore that he has yet to explore as it relates to Israel and Gaza? Uh, yes, yes, there there are um, one of you know there are direct options, but there are also diplomatic options. Uh, you know he has to organize a coalition of the willing, uh, meaning all of Israel's neighbors uh, and all of Israel's supporters, uh, in favor of a two-state solution. The two-state solution is the only way out of this. Now, the direct thing that he can do, I've been touting this, is to say, okay, if you want to continue this bludgeoning of Gaza, we are going to cut off all offensive weapons to you. We're not going to we're not going to send you a single bullet. We will send you the ability to defend yourselves Patriot missile systems, Iron Dome systems, radar systems. But. A strong message has to be sent. Let me let me jump in right there, Joe. That's those are two great thoughts. Let me go to break and we'll catch more of those thoughts on the other side. I'm Major Garrett, Joe Klein, John Ellis, our special guest. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to The Takeout. Joe Klein and John Ellis, our special guest, their podcast, Night Owls, John Ellis' Substack, news items, political items, Joe Klein's Substack, Sanity Clause. Joe, continue... Your thoughts. So if uh, the president were to do that, you know as well as I do, every Republican would say he's abandoning Israel uh, and that would be a political earthquake. They could say it. Uh, and uh, more to the point, APAC, the American Israel Public Political Affairs Committee, uh, would uh, would condemn it. Uh, but I think at this point, he's got to show the strength to be independent. I, I think that he has to show that he isn't just a functionary, uh, that he can be bold and that he can go up against, in, you know, the uh, the vested interests, uh, while at the same time strongly supporting the need for Israel to continue to exist. Uh, John, we are recording this, as I said, at the top of the show on Leap Day, February 29th. On this day, President Biden will be on the U.S.-Mexico border. Former President Trump will be there as well. 
It will be the first split screen, I believe, of the general election campaign as we currently know it. Has immigration, and you alluded to this a moment ago, been a blind spot for this president? And if so, why? Oh, I mean, I, you know, if the border is, is, isn't a crisis, it's a, it's a mega crisis. And the Biden White House, for whatever reason, uh, just has, has sort of uh, sat there and let it build and build and build to the point where the mayors of New York City and Boston are begging for relief. Um, the big on the spritz on the split screen uh, story today uh, is Trump is going to be an Eagle Pass. Uh, the governor of Texas has uh, has sort of taken the law into his own hands at, at Eagle Pass. And as Joe and I have talked about a lot, we don't understand why Biden has not federalized the National Guard and taken back control of the border, essentially. Um, uh, that one, I can't, I literally can't believe that that Eagle Pass situation still, you know, simmers um, because it's clear that the law is on the president's side. It's clear that something needs to be done. It's clear that uh, Abbott is, you know, overstepped bounds, uh, leaps and bounds. Um, so I, I don't, I don't get why the Biden administration has been so halting and indecisive on the immigration issue you know major as you said before we have so many crises we have to deal with but this one has kind of slipped underneath the radar uh greg abbott the governor of texas is standing athwart against the rulings of the united states supreme court yep. Uh, that is a form of nullification. Yep. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, we don't see headlines about that. We don't see many stories about that. But it is wild. And a whole bunch of other Republican governors are standing with him against the United States Supreme Court. 21 governors. Yes, yes. Not just not just a few. And, and I, um, I want to I take that observation about the lack of headlines about the, that particular story to engage you both into into a broader conversation about the state of American journalism. And when this is not going to be a therapy session, I just want to have your practical thoughts about what's missing. There are many who argue that journalism, as it's practiced currently in America, has lost the plot. There are plenty of facts, but not much truth or Things are getting missed because people are overworked or chasing clicks. And institutional media is not as responsive to these times and the gravity of these times. That's why people like you have moved outside of institutional norms and channels to create your own space with your own voice. Uh, John, I want to start with you. Your thoughts on this broader topic about the state of journalism. Uh, the state is, you know, the big thing is that the advertising base, which used to be 70, 75 percent uh, of, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post, that has dwindled dramatically. And so they're entirely dependent now on subscriptions and subscriptions require, you know, views and clicks. Um, and so what's come into, you know, when Joe and I started in this business, there were five, I think, columnists at the New York Times. If you go to the New York Times webpage now, there are probably 25 opinion columnists, right? Um, and that's because opinion sells. Um, I will say this. I, I look at a lot of news every morning. I probably look at the team looks at about 50 or 60 
sites, uh, you know, in preparation for the distribution of news items. And the quality of the journalism uh, uh, that we see uh, regularly is fantastic. I mean, some of the work is just amazing. And the science work especially uh, is is uh, is really impressive. So this whole thing of journalism is no good and, and the reporters are all biased and this, that, and the other thing, um, I, I completely disagree with that. There is a lot of, you know, shoddy work, but the, the excellence of the work uh, today is every bit as good as it was 20 years ago. Joe? Yeah, I, I get kind of infuriated when... Um, uh, you know, people talk about the lamestream media because the first thing that comes to mind is the war reporting that I've done in the past and the absolute courage and integrity of people like Dexter Filkins, now of The New Yorker, formerly of The Times, Steve Call, who has a new book about Saddam Hussein, uh, and David Ignatius, uh, and others, Chris Chivers from The Times. These people risk their lives for the truth. And so we can't lose track of and that. And I would say but on I behalf like of to... my colleagues, Charlie Daggett, Holly Williams, Deborah Pata, and, all, and the like, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely those people as well. Um, you know, we've lost friends who were journalists uh, uh, over the years, and uh, and others have been seriously w- wounded, like Bob Woodruff. Uh, but, you know, I think that the... Uh, the un, unseen threat to journalism, um, and this is something that uh, John is obsessed with and will set your hair on fire, is the threat of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John? You have 30 seconds, John. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think that AI, uh, just because of the pressure on the comp- you know the business of CBS or the New York Times that eventually AI will take an ever greater role in the newsroom uh, and essentially automate uh, the news. Um, And that's probably a very bad thing. Well, it certainly didn't work out very well for Sports Illustrated. No, not not so good. (laughs) A publication that I believe all three of us grew up reading and admiring and loving as much as anything that came to our doorstep on a weekly basis. Yeah, Dan Jenkins, Frank DeFord. Ron Fermite, yeah. Uh, yeah, boy, that was some of the best writing on anything uh, that existed when, when I was coming up. Stay tuned for your takeout outtake especial with Joe Klein and John Ellis. See you next week, folks. Welcome to your takeout outtake especial, the fun and games portion of our conversation, Joe Klein and John Ellis. So, gentlemen, we have three questions we pose to all of our guests, and I will start with you, Joe. Most influential book in your life and why? All-time favorite movie? And if you're on a long flight or a long drive, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Uh, Well, most important book, boy, there are are plenty of them, but uh, novel, Huckleberry Finn, which is the ultimate American novel. And it is a crime that it is banned in many states, both from the left and from the right. Uh, Nonfiction, I think The Power Broker by Robert Caro uh, really taught me how to look at urban life. And my early reporting days were about uh, urban life. What was the second one? Film? Yes. Uh, hmm. 
got to go with uh, Black and White, uh, Sullivan's Travels. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Color, Lawrence of Arabia. David Lean. Excellent. And uh, and and music. Well, I am the father of an Austin singer songwriter, and the first book I wrote was a biography of Woody Guthrie, and so I really lean toward Americana, country, folk, blues sort of music, and I am fanatic about it. Excellent, John. I think the, my favorite novel is is The Great Gatsby. Um, the my favorite movie is Casablanca. And the music I would listen to driving across the country would be Mark Knopfler beginning at the very beginning and all the way to today. I, he's far and away my favorite uh, musician. And a nonfiction book for you, John? Well, I, I the first Carol book about Johnson I thought was a masterpiece. And then there are a number of, you know, the Hamilton biography, the, the J.P. Morgan biography. The, those are Those are huge, great books. But I was I was stunned uh, by the first Johnson book by Robert Carroll. It was, it was a masterpiece. For our audience, we get many many references to Robert Carroll from our guests because that's kind of the water we swim in. And uh, every time he's mentioned, I tip my cap because Robert Carroll deserves every mention he gets. Joe Klein, John Ellis, thank you so much for your time. Safe travels. Enjoy. We'll see you down the road on the campaign trail. See you. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.